We're starting a brand new book tonight, the book of Jude. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn there with me to the book of Jude. And we're going to be starting in chapter 1. And if your Bible has Jude chapter 2, I'd suggest you return your Bible. Uh, because there's only one chapter in this small letter preceding one of the most famous books of the Bible, and that is the book of Revelation, which we'll look at next as we continue our study through the New Testament. Um, but the book of Jude is extremely timely, uh, extremely timely for you and I tonight. Um, it is going to challenge us. It is going to ask us and earnestly appeal to us to contend for the faith. And that is the name of the series. The next three weeks we'll be going through this small book together. Let us contend. And what are we contending for? We are contending for the faith of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. What do you deem worthy enough to fight for? What would you fight for? What would bring you to the point that you would be motivated enough to fight for it? Go to battle over it. Think about that for a minute. What is so precious, what is so important to you that you would be willing to fight for it? Well, I can imagine if you're here tonight and you have children and you're a mother, would you fight for your children if you saw that they were in harm? Absolutely. Would you fight for your freedom as an American? Something very precious to all of us. Would you fight for injustice? What will you fight for? What will move you to the point where you are willing to fight for it? That's a question you need to ask yourself. Especially in a culture that is swayed and uh, overrun by apathy and complacency, we have adopted a mindset that we need to pick our battles in which we fight. Now there's wisdom to that. I think there is wisdom to choose our battles wisely and fight those battles accordingly. But then I asked the question to qualify that mindset, what battles are worth fighting for? What is important enough for you to fight for? And usually it takes an extreme before a person is motivated to fight for something, to contend for something. Either it is a great love for that thing, or it is a hatred of that thing that will move someone to fight for it. Jude wanted to write a letter to us encouraging us, giving us a edification concerning the common salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. That's what he wanted to write. He wanted to write a letter to assure us of our doctrine. He wanted to write a letter that would encourage us in our faith and to uh, bring us into a greater appreciation of our common salvation in Jesus Christ. That's what he wanted to do. But out of necessity, he wasn't able to. Out of necessity, he knew that something was lurking that was more important that needed to be addressed immediately. And that's what he chose to do. Look with me in verses 3 and 4, if you will. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is what I wanted to do, but I couldn't. Because out of necessity, and because of what was happening, and because of what you were facing, I needed to write to you, to appeal to you, to exhort you, to eagerly encourage you, contend for the faith. Today as a Christian, more than ever, we need to understand the importance of biblical doctrine. And unfortunately, over the last 30 years that I have been a Christian, I have seen biblical doctrine become less and less important to the layman, to the average believer in Jesus Christ. There are certain aspects that they embrace wholeheartedly. There are other aspects that they don't really feel are a necessity to embrace in being a Christian And therefore, there's a lot of vacillation. There's a lot of ambiguity. There's a lot of uh, of vagueness when it comes to the doctrinal stance of the Christian in America today. For example, 30 years ago, it wasn't even a matter of question that Jesus was born from Mary, who was a virgin and who conceived as a virgin by the Holy Spirit. There is theological necessity to that conception to allow Jesus to be the Son of God, therefore being perfect, and therefore allowing Him to go to the cross and satisfy the payment of debt that we owed for our sins. What we couldn't pay for ourselves, He paid on our behalf. That's necessity that he was born from a virgin, that he was born without sin. But today, I just discovered that many Christians don't feel that the virgin birth is, is a necessary thing to believe in as a Christian any longer. That it doesn't really matter. And then you have others who today, uh, you know, are convinced that God, you know, didn't really mean what he said in Genesis 1, that he, he didn't actually create the world in six days. Obviously, evolution has to be taken into consideration. So it is figurative, it is allegorical, it is symbolic, but it cannot be literal. And Christians don't feel the necessity to contend for that any longer. That, that God used an evolutionary process and through that evolutionary process brought about his creation. Theological problem if you embrace that. Then you are putting death before sin. That's a theological problem. Death did not exist until sin was introduced into creation. Everything was created perfectly. And therefore, God said it was good. And therefore, if death uh, had some part in the process of creation, death existed before the fall of man, who supposedly evolved in some process of evolution from ape to man. These are inconsistent with biblical teaching. 
and they have theological ramifications and complications that most Christians don't understand any longer. Now, when we as Christians say that we believe in a six-day literal creation, usually the response that we get is laughter. Well, you have to be silly if you believe in something like that, because evolution has to be true. Well, here's a neat little secret for all of you. Do you realize that even the secular community themselves are questioning the validity of evolution today? They are seeing the significant gaps within their logic and they're not able to explain away those gaps any longer because as we dive into the creation itself and when we even look at a cell under an enormous microscope, we see the complexities of that cell to be so superior to any simple organism that it must have a designer and a creator because it has structure, it has function. And what does the Christian community do? Well, we move away. We say evolution has to be the process. And therefore, we are telling people that they've evolved from monkeys, and then we are shocked when everybody acts like animals. Right? We need to be more concerned about biblical doctrine. What does the Bible teach? And is the Bible something that you love enough that you would be willing to contend for it? That you would be willing to stand up and say, that's wrong because the Bible says otherwise. That's a question you have to ask yourself. Now, there are certainly subjects that we as Christians can agree to disagree upon, right? There are lovely Christians around the world that may have different interpretations of passages that do not affect the theological necessities that are required for salvation. That's certainly true. And we can still have fellowship with these Christians, we can still have unity with these Christians, but we can agree to disagree on certain objects. Some Christians believe that, you know, the gifts of the Spirit are no longer active in the church today, where we believe that they are still active in the church today and believe that the Spirit of God still works in those ways. But we can agree to disagree on those, and we can still remain in fellowship. But there has to come a time, I believe, where we are confronted with a reality, with an objection, with a um, reaction of someone that requires us to contend for the faith. Stand up and say, that's wrong. And a lot of us don't want to be confrontational people. We don't want to get into contention with people. We don't want to have these incredibly uncomfortable conversations but Jude is asking us to do just that. And it's not just up to me. You may think as a Christian, well, isn't that something that the pastor would do? I mean, can't I just give him my friend's number and he'll call? Yeah, you can, and I'm going to delegate it to someone else within the church. Yeah, absolutely, that's something that I will do. However, though, God is asking you to do it also. When I first became a Christian and I didn't know anything about the Bible, I just knew that there was this thing called the Bible and within it, it talked about God. But God wanted me to get into the Word of God. He wanted me to know what I believe and why I believe those things. And so he did something very unique. 
Not only did he lead me to a good Bible teaching church, but he also allowed me to go to work every single day and work right next to one of the most aggressive evangelistic Jehovah Witnesses you'll ever meet. Constantly challenging me on my Christianity. Constantly telling me why the Trinity was wrong and why Jesus was not God and and why the Bible is incomplete and why we need the Watchtower magazine. And he would hammer me day after day after day. And then after hammering me theologically, he would then smile with this big smile that he had and say, I love you. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm not loving you right now. And so I did what every good Christian would do. I went back and I told my pastor, teach me everything about the Bible. I want to take this guy out. <laughs> I mean, all the Christian love and compassion in a thimble. Uh, you know, I'm, and that's it. Teach me everything that I need to know about the Trinity from the very beginning to the very end. And I'll give you 15 minutes to do it. Because I got to go back today and I've got to take this guy on. But I realized that here's the difference between our beliefs. He was very sincere about what he believed. He was very certain about what he believed. But his certainty was not based upon truth. His sincerity was not based upon truth. And the Jesus in whom he embraced is incapable of saving him for all eternity. Is that worth fighting for? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ worth fighting for? Yeah, absolutely, man. And God brought me there so I could talk with him, but also encourage me to get into the word of God. And that's how it all began for me. I wanted to write to you, Jude says, but I couldn't. I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, but I couldn't because of what's happening. Here's the problem. Certain men have crept in to the church. That's what he says here in verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. Now we're getting ahead of ourselves, but I'm giving you a taste, a flavor for this letter. There's a sense of urgency in Jude's writing. He needs you to understand that there is a problem amongst us. These Christians had amongst themselves individuals that came in, false teachers, teaching false things. And this was a concern enough for this man, Jude, who we'll look at in just a minute, to write in his authority, as he did, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to encourage us to contend for the faith. For he begins this letter in verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Who is Jude? Well, it's a short version of the word Judas. And believe it or not, Jude was a stepbrother of Jesus. Do you know that Jesus had stepbrothers? Because Joseph and Mary, after her conception by the Holy Spirit and having Jesus before she was with her husband Joseph, that's so important to the, to the story, after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph had other children. In fact, Mark 6.3 tells us that he had, four, he had three or four brothers and sisters. Now, we talk to our Catholic friends and they don't believe that Mary had any children after she had Jesus. 
She remained a virgin for her entire life, but that's not biblically accurate. She did have other children. And Jude was one of them. And this is a letter written by the half-brother of Jesus. They shared the same mother. Uh, they shared the same father in the sense that Joseph adopted Jesus as his son. Jude grew up with Jesus. How would you like that, growing up with Jesus? Anybody grow up with an older brother? Did you ever get compared to your older brother? Was he the standard of all things? How do you grow up in a house where Jesus is the older brother? How come you can't be perfect like Jesus? How come you can't keep your room immaculate like Jesus? How would you like that? Would you think that that would create some animosity between brothers? Now there's a lot of speculation, a lot of conjecture. But can you imagine that one day, all of a sudden you discover your older brother has gone from your older brother to being the Messiah? Oh, by the way, James and Jude, not only am I your older brother, but I'm God. Yeah, right. How did the brothers react to a young man named Joseph when in the Old Testament he was said to have been given a dream by God, which he was, and that gave him superiority over his brothers? How did they feel about that? They kidnapped him and they threw him into a pit and then he was sold into Egyptian slavery because he dared, you know, come against the older brothers. Now the older brother is coming to James and these others and saying, I'm Jesus. Can you imagine this happening in front of you? All of a sudden watching and your older brother starts going off and he's baptized and the Holy Spirit's upon him and he's doing all of these incredible things and people are rising from the dead and people are being fed and the 5,000 and he's doing these incredible teachings and f- people are following him from one end of Israel to the other end. That's my older brother. And do you know that John chapter 7 tells us that his brothers did not believe in him? They mocked him while he was here on this earth in his earthly ministry. And then something happened that radically changed their lives. He said, they're going to kill me. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And it appears that the resurrection is what brought uh, them to the saving faith in their brother. Can you imagine your brother coming to you? Hey, believe on me for your everlasting life. (laughs) That'd be hard to swallow. I mean, that would be tough. But then he rose again on the third day. And not only Jude... But his brother James also became a prominent figure in the early church. And it is that James who gives us the book of James, who's also a stepbrother of Jesus. But notice what Jude says about himself. Jude calls himself a brother of James, right? Right? But what does he call himself concerning Jesus? Servant. In the Greek, it's doulos, slave. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. He went from John 7, not believing in Jesus, to a doulos, a servant of Jesus Christ. Radical transformation. Something happened in his life. I don't know about you, but your brother coming back from the dead, that would have a tendency to have a lasting impression. 
And Jude then now in his, you know, uh, he, he isn't one of the 12 apostles, but he is obviously uh, well known to them. And, and James was there and he became a prominent figure in the Jer- uh, Jerusalem church interacting with Peter and Paul and all the others, John. And Jude writing this to these lovely Christians because we have here that he is writing to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. This can only be referring to Christians. He is writing as a servant of Jesus Christ to Christians. It is God who called you out of the world. It is you who is beloved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Many see the Trinity in action there, called by the Spirit of God, beloved by the F- God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. He's assuring these individuals that even though that they are experiencing difficulties and challenges to their faith, they can be assured that they are kept by the Father in His hand, John 10, for Jesus Christ. We who are saved through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for all eternity will be given unto the Son that we may worship Him and exalt Him and give Him exaltation and adoration for all eternity. We are His prize. We are His bride. We are the church. We are those that have been redeemed by Him. We are His sheep And this is what we'll be doing for all eternity. And we are kept by the hand of God to do so. And we are kept for Christ for all eternity. That's an awesome thing to consider. Writing to Christians and his desire was, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. It means overflowing. This is what he desires. This is what he wants for them. He cares for them. But there's a problem. And that problem is real. And that problem is something that is confronting them and they need to deal with. In verse 3, we read it once, we'll read it again. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, hoping that he, like Peter, and there's so much similarity between Jude and Second Peter, Definitely, Jude was a study of Peter. Uh, Definitely was familiar with his work and his writings. He wanted to write a book like 1 Peter that was, you know, a more formal uh, statement on doctrine and Christian living. But instead, the appearance and the spread of false teaching had led him to respond by writing a warning of the consequences of following those who propagate heretical ideas and call hold to fast the apostolic faith. From the very beginning, the faith in Jesus Christ was being challenged by those who would spread false teaching. How do you counter that? How do you know and how can you recognize false teaching when it comes across your path? 
when you're listening to a pastor on the radio or watching a uh, pastor on television or listening to Christian friends or listening to a Christian music radio station, how do you know that what is being said is true and accurate? Do you simply assign uh, authenticity to it because of who is saying it? Maybe you're familiar with his work. Maybe you're familiar with her work. And you trust them just solely dependently upon who they are. Or do you simply equate it as authentic because it appears to come from the Bible? You know, people have said, and they say it accurately, uh, anything can be proven by the Bible. You can take the Bible and make it say anything that you want it to say and prove anything that you want it to prove. Because you often, when it's taken out of context, you can do anything you want with it. So how do you recognize and how do you understand what is truly biblical and what is truly right and what is in error? There's only one way you can do so. That is to know the truth, right? That's the only way you can recognize error from truth is by knowing the truth. Studying the Bible for yourself. Now, many Christians I have discovered today feel inadequate to do so. But pastor, I've never gone to Bible college. I've never gone to seminary. I, I, I haven't had the opportunities to study with great biblical teachers. And I say to them, understand this, that you have something that is better than seminary. You have something that's better than any pastor that is available for you to listen to. You have the Holy Spirit that guides you into truth as you read God's Word. Anyone can learn what the Bible says. I am fully confident of that. I am so confident of that, that when I teach on Wednesdays, when I teach on Sundays, I believe that I'm actually equipping you to fulfill whatever ministry God is calling you to. I have that much confidence in it. And you say, well, you don't know me. I don't learn very well. You know, I I like the picture Bible with the pop-ups and the scratch and sniffs. That's the one that gets me. Trust me. God is not nearly concerned about what you bring to the table. He is definitely more concerned about what He brings to you, and that's everything. Okay? Anyone can learn the Bible. And the only way you can prepare yourself to know the error from the truth is to study God's Word. There's no other way around it. But, you know, today, people want others to do the work for them. I have been told personally, Pastor, on Sunday, I just want you to tell me what I need to know. Fine, that's what I do every single Sunday, because you need to know the Word of God. Well, pastor, just give me those things that are relevant for my life. The Bible is relevant for your life in its entirety. You just have to understand how to apply it properly. It's the Word of God. We use this example often, but it's still true to this day. That the United States of America, when it was inundated by counterfeit bills, began to um, hire individuals that their sole job was to recognize the counterfeit from the real dollar bill. 
It was a real problem in the 1920s. Counterfeiting was huge. In fact, I don't know if you understood this, but the Secret Service had really two functions at one time. They were to protect those who held political office, and they were to hunt down counterfeiters. Did you know one of the most famous counterfeit arrests took place here in Carpentersville on the small island that is behind auto engineering. And the detectives were from an agency called Pinkerton's and they arrested some of the most prominent counterfeiters of that time right there on that island. That's where they were hiding out. But they didn't know how to train these guys because all the counterfeits, counterfeiters used all different kinds of methods in creating dollar bills. And then one individual came up with this brilliant idea. Instead of studying all the counterfeit bills to try to learn uh, their errors and mistakes, let's just focus on learning the, the true dollar bill inside and out. And therefore, when they learned the true dollar bill inside and out, when a counterfeit bill came across their path, they could say, aha, that's it. There's no way I could learn the nuances of every religion in the world, is there? It'd be a lifelong pursuit. You could never do it adequately. But I can know the Word of God and be able to detect false from, um, false from the truth. He is urgently asking us to contend. He is appealing to us to contend. And that means here, contend implies a strenuous effort. The word is used of a participant in an athletic comp- uh, competition. Mental effort is needed to understand and to teach the Word of God. A right and moral effort is needed to apply that understanding to everyday behavior. It takes work. You know, everyone starts the new year hoping to eat right. And then they discover how much eating right takes and how much work is, nece- is necessary for it. And they grow discouraged. Talking with uh, Wade, you know, as a personal trainer, he always gets people who are thrilled of the idea of having a personal trainer and losing weight until they discover how much work it actually takes to do so. Then they're not so thrilled about it anymore. We can be lazy, and we can solely rely on what everybody tells us, or we can open up the Word of God and simply begin to read it for ourselves to see what it under to see what it says, and that we can understand it. For he says, I ask you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. There is no new revelation. Everything you need for life and godliness is found in this book. There's nothing new. So if you hear a radio advertisement or if you go into a local Christian bookstore and they're saying, here's something new that has never been discovered before and here's some new revelation that God has just spoken to me as I was walking along the Fox River and now it can be yours for the low price of $399 and you too can know what God told me. I don't really care what God told you. I'm more worried about what God told me through His Word. There is no new revelation. For the faith has been once and for all given to the saints. To me in that statement, Jude is saying that even in his time, which we're talking about 60 AD, somewhere in there, 60 to 65 AD, that 
By that time, the teachings of Jesus Christ were so solidified in the minds of the Christians that they knew that there was nothing more to be had. That's fascinating to me. Because you're talking about a period of 30 years. You're talking about a period of 30 years and these new believers were already convinced that there was nothing more to be had. And so he then goes on that it has been once and for all committed to the saints. But this is what I am asking you to contend for. Why? For certain people. Undoubtedly, he had specific people in mind have crept in unnoticed. Paul the Apostle was very clear in Acts chapter 20 as he was talking there to the Ephesian elders. After He was about to leave. He was about to go to Rome. He said something that should have echoed in their minds and in their hearts because he said, after I leave, I know what's going to happen. Wolves are going to come in in sheep's clothing and they're going to try to devour what is being done here. This is why I labored day and night, he said, to teach you all that I could. See, it's one thing, and we all anticipate there being uh, objection and antagonism from the world towards Christianity. It's much more difficult when that contention rises up from within. If Satan can't destroy it from the outside, he's going to try to destroy it from the inside. And one of the reasons that I think we have been so fortunate at this this church to remain in doctrinal unity is because you know the Word of God. And if someone comes in off the street starting teaching something that is certainly not biblical... It doesn't even have to get to my attention. Usually the congregants, they already know. Hey, this is not something. This is, oh no, okay, this doesn't sound familiar to me. This whole church started with a Bible study that was being taught by an individual who was introducing very damaging doctrines to young, wonderful, sweet Christians. And even though they did not know the Word of God uh, in its entirety at that point because they were new believers, God gave them enough discernment to know that what they were being taught was wrong. And they asked, and I came in and talked, and that's how this church began. began. Folks, that's why I want everybody to be equipped. And as new people come in, we welcome them, we love them, we embrace them, we make them part of the family with no stipulations or requirements. And then as you are talking with them, if you hear something that is odd to you or foreign, um, then you deal with it at that moment. We just had a gentleman coming into our church just recently. We haven't seen him for a while, so I'll mention this. But he pulled me aside one day because he was concerned that I would be concerned in the manner in which God spoke to him. And I said, well, what is the manner in which God spoke to you that you're so concerned about? I believe that God speaks to me through my alarm clock. I am not kidding you. That's what he said there. I'm like, really? So, wow, where do I get one of those clocks? Obviously, from that point forward, red flag goes up, right? Okay, I mean... Unless you've got an alarm clock that has a radio station that turns on and there's like a pastor teaching. (laughs) But it was the numbers. And he took those numbers as saying that that must be chapters and verses that God wants me to learn from. And I'm like, wow, really? And I tried to reason with him. I said, look, I mean, uh, I don't think that's the way God would approach you on that. 
And we haven't seen them since. But again, be aware, be careful, because people will creep in. And they will creep in and they will try to cause division and they will bring about things that are unhealthy within a healthy body. This does not mean we become critical. It does not mean we become judgmental. It isn't, doesn't even mean that we become skeptical and we sit back and we're cynical and say, all right, we are not going to love you until you prove yourself to us. We're going to love, but we're also going to test. And we're going to listen. And we're going to take it back to the Word of God. And there may be things that we can agree to disagree upon. That's fine. We can still have unity. We still have fellowship. But if it's something heretical, if it's something that the Word of God says is inaccurate, then we're going to say that's what it is. But look what he goes on to say. That from the very moment, he says here, they were designated for this condemnation. Paul talked about this. The Old Testament predicted that false teachers were going to arise and uh, so forth. And Paul reiterated this in Second Timothy, that in the last days the Spirit expressly says that there will be false teachers among us. In fact, turn with me to Second Timothy, because I think it's important that you read this um, for yourself. As we grow closer to the return of Jesus Christ, understand that false teachers will arise. First Timothy. Nope. Yeah, first Timothy four. Listen to what Paul writes. Now the Spirit expressly says, meaning that he's fully confident the Holy Spirit is teaching him this, says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to de- deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the in- insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from food that God created to be received with thankfulness for those who believe and know the truth. He is telling us, he is warning us. Peter, his last letter, before he's about to die, he absolutely warns us and begs us to be conscientious of false teachers and false teaching. And how can we just simply dismiss it? How can we not take it seriously? How can we not be watching? How can we not be careful? When If Peter tells me, and John tells me, and Jude tells me, and Paul tells me, and Jesus tells me that false teachers and false teaching will arise and constantly be a problem with, within the church and from without the church, we need to be aware of these things. And as Jude went on to say, as he wraps up his introduction and purpose for writing his letter. He says here in verse 4 that these individuals are ungodly people, that they're irrelevant, I'm sorry, irreverent to God, who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So they are saying that the grace of God is a platform to allow someone to sin and they're saying that you that they're denying the master who is Jesus Christ our lord 
Those are subjects that we cannot agree to disagree upon, right? The grace of God is never meant to be a license for sin in any way, shape, or form. And we cannot deny Jesus, the one in whom saved us. That's what these specific certain men were doing. As we get to our next section next week, the argument of the letter, he begins to then profile these teachers, reminding us how God will hold the unrighteous accountable and he will judge them accordingly. And then he goes on to tell us a little bit about these men's characters and what they are doing. And then he goes on to compare them to some Old Testament examples. And then we're going to see that Jude uniquely uses uh, information from the Assumption of Moses, a, a, a book written uh, back in that time, and also the book of First Enoch. And we're going to say, well, how's that possible? Because these are not canonized works. But yet the Spirit of God allowed him to quote these things and use these things as examples. Great interesting things that we'll find in the book of Jude. I am greatly concerned as your pastor about false teaching. I'm also very concerned that many well, sweet, loving Christians can no longer discern truth from error. There has been one article after another written by prominent Christian um, apologists and those who study the health of the church in America who are gravely concerned that the level of biblical illiteracy that we are seeing in our nation today has become a a fertile soil for every heretical thinking and idea. And those ideas are then able to grow very rapidly and very healthily, and they are never challenged by leadership and by the laity. I believe that we are all responsible for discerning between truth and error. It is certainly a part of my responsibility for this church as your pastor, but it's also yours too. And just because someone says something on a Christian radio station, or just someone because someone says something on a Christian music station, or just because the book is sold at a Christian bookstore, it doesn't necessarily mean that it contains healthy biblical teaching. False teaching is very dangerous because it leads to false conclusions, which then bring about within the life of the individual false expectations upon God. And when those false expectations are not met, there is a essence of discouragement, there is an essence of despair that that individual holds to, and often, often they are derailed from their Christian life because of that false teaching. But those who are God's, Know that we are kept for Christ, called by the Spirit, beloved by the Father. And Jude's going to encourage us at the end, though, even though we are facing such difficulties, it is Him who keeps us from stumbling. It is the Word of God that keeps us true in our course with Christ. And I think we must be aware of what Jude is asking us to do. Because he so desired to read about our, write about our common salvation, but he couldn't. The necessity proved overwhelming. 
that he write and appeal to us and encourage us to contend for the faith that has been once and for all given to the church.